Take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Today we begin a new study, um, and I'm looking forward to it. As you're turning there, I, I would also invite you, it'll be a little bit harder to find, by the way, than maybe Ephesians or some of the books, Romans, that your Bible is already open to, but uh, go on back, flip on back. You may not realize this, this could have been Paul's first letter, one of his earliest, and uh, there's just a, a lot here. Once you've found that, uh, I would also encourage you to turn back to the book of Acts and stick something there so you can refer back to it. We'll be doing that along the way. There's a backstory that is found in Acts chapter 17 of the founding of the church, and uh, we'll be talking about it, but I really want you to go back to the beginning of verse or, or chapter 16 of Acts. So go back there and mark that, and uh, let me just make a couple of introductory remarks, some questions really that I would like to pose to you to get us started thinking about this. I'd like these questions not to be just rhetorical. I'd, I'd like you to really to think about them. Who are you? That's a basic question, isn't it? Let me ask it another way. How do people define you? How do you define yourself? Have you got an answer? And how would you answer this morning? Now, here's what I've found when I pose that question. I've done that through the years. I find that most people define themselves, and you probably would do this in terms of what you do for a living or where you live. Let me ask it in still another way, and I hope this does not come across as morbid. It's reality. What will they write on your tombstone? Or better yet, since the space is somewhat limited on tombstones, what will the preacher say at your funeral? And will it be true? I, I, enough said. I have story after story, illustration after illustration. We're not going to go there. But I'm talking about what will they say about you beyond your obituary? Now, take those questions and, and just carry them through the message, and we'll be coming back to this, because in this introductory verse, we're going to chapter 1, verse 1, Paul sets the tone of the entire letter to the church, that's the believers in Thessalonica. There was a lot there for them in this first verse, and there is a lot there for us. Again, in order to unpack this, and this is the relatedness of the Bible. It's its own commentary. You really can't understand one portion of it until you go to other parts of it, and so that's why I wanted you to go back to Acts chapters 16 and 17 to see how the three amigos, I'm going to call them, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy came together. You have to see that, and you have to see some of their journey to get an idea of what is happening in the church in Thessalonica. So with that, let's, you got your Bible or your smart device or whatever you're using, let's stand together one more time, and I will let you sit down after this one verse but we, we sing standing up. It just helps us. Now, you're not actually reading the word out loud, I don't think. You're following me as I read this. But I do think that it's important that we stand. We stand in honor of the word of God. So listen to it. This little verse, this introductory verse, verse almost a throwaway kind of thing, but it's not. There is so much packed here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. O oh God, 
You ultimately are the author of this letter, although Paul penned the words. So help us not to go beyond what you say, but help us to glean everything that you do say. And Lord, we will be grateful that we can come together and those at home and those in the other venues who are listening right now, please bind our hearts, unite our hearts to hear and to respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Let me just make a couple of introductory remarks. As I read through this and then reread, and that's, that's something that is good for you to do especially as we begin a new series. Go, just read the whole book. It's a short book. And then reread it and then reread it and jot down things that, that, that really hit you, that come up to you. I've written down four, and there are a lot more. Uh, I did that in the interest of time. But here are a couple of things that I noticed in my, in my first readings uh, of this little letter to the church. First of all, the believers were not marked by controversy. You know, if, you, if you're a student of the New Testament, you'll find that Paul typically writes to churches that have a bunch of problems. Maybe it was because he's writing in close, close proximity to the founding of the church. I don't know. But he really is not writing to address big problems. Now, he will correct some things, and he'll go on in 2 Thessalonians to do the same thing. But what I'm struck by is the fact that Paul mentions something very important. He mentions their faithfulness. Their faithfulness in the face of a lot of suffering and affliction. Look at how he's going to commend them a little bit later on in this chapter in verse 6. He said, you received the word. Now, I just wonder sometimes if it's possible to really put ourselves into their shoes. I don't know how many of you today are going through affliction, much affliction. I can assure you in other parts of the world, the church, the churches that are meeting together, whether it's in a house or a storefront or a building, they are meeting together in much affliction. And yet look at this, and he commends them. You received the word. That wasn't a distraction to you. The afflictions, he's going to say some things, we'll get into this later on, it's for another sermon, about how this is from the Lord as well, but you received the word, you received the gospel, you received the word as it was delivered to you in much affliction, but look how they received it with great joy of the Holy Spirit. I said this last week, and, and, I, and I really sense it today too, there, there is joy in the hearts of many people right here getting back together. And for those of you who are still at home, you're aching for that sense of coming together with joy, and you're going to be glad, even if you're in the overflow or you're in the other venue. You'll be glad when you can come into this building and fellowship together and receive the word together. So I was really struck by that. Another thing that I was struck by, how Paul uses the second coming of Christ as an encouragement. As you read through this, I want you to notice something. Because I picked up on it and I marked it in my Bible. In every chapter that Paul writes in this little letter, he mentions the second coming of Christ. Now again, was it because it was so fresh? This is one of the earliest letters, as I said, that he, he, he constantly spoke of the coming of Christ as an encouragement to live the way that we ought to live. And this is so important. We talked about the coming of Christ in the book of Joel, didn't we? Finished up the book of Joel with talking about the coming, not only in judgment, but the wonder of the coming for believers in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I, I try to do this. Look at your outline that you have in front of you. Uh, I, I try to do this every time that we do a sermon. There is a big picture for the whole series. And I do my best to capture what, what is Paul's primary thought for the entire book and then to nail it down individually as we go through the verses uh, uh, week by week. So the big idea of the picture, I could think of nothing better than just 
inserting one of those things about the second coming of Christ and the encouragement for our living in Christ. Look at it. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, but it's right there at the top of your worship guide, and it says this. Now may the God of peace, and we're going to come back to that, the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart, make you holy completely. And that's going to happen when Christ comes back. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept right now blameless at or until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the big picture. You know, there are some who have said these things. I really haven't heard this much, but I have heard it, trust me, and maybe you have too. There was a time when heaven was talked about a lot more by the church of Jesus Christ, and it was a constant theme, and so a criticism that came to the church, that came to Christians who were constantly talking about heaven was this. You guys, you guys are just escapists. You can't live in the real world because your minds are set on heaven. And I thought about this when, when Paul over and over again, just like in the big idea, the, the verse there in, in chapter 5, that that is such a motivation. Listen to some comments and a quote by C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard it before, but if you have, you need to hear it again. He said these words, if you read history, and this is true, don't let revisionist undo what God has done through his church. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, witness Paul, who set foot on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven. I love this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Paul was not an escapist. He wanted to encourage them with reality about heaven. Also, something that I noticed, and this is beautiful, the letter is intensely personal. Paul's encouragement, and you guys, you have to know how I pray that because I do this week after week, and Jonathan gets up here, and people get up here week after week, and we do not want this just to be a time when you come in and listen and sing, and then you go home. We want this to be a time of engagement, and, and Paul felt that. You know why? Because he was so personally connected with the people at Thessalonica, and, and this could be one of the most personal Letters, Phil, uh, the, the, the church of, of Philippi, certainly that one, but he was intensely personal. He didn't say what he said and say, okay, now, I want you to do this because it's the law. I want you to do this because I said so. Now, you parents, think of how that goes over with your children when you're trying to get them to do the right thing. It comes across as legalistic and sterile many times. And yes, there is a duty. I understand all of that. But the key is that Paul always ties his exhortations with relationships. There was a time. Well, let me just do this. Let's read this passage of Scripture because I want you to see this. Okay, I was almost going to skip over it, but I want you to see this. And and I'm going to take some time to, to read through this. In chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, starting with chapter 3, listen to, to the personal involvement of the Apostle Paul. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, 
or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Here's the first huge statement. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For, and watch this, here's the second statement of parental love. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. I've had to learn a lot as a dad. Now as a grandfather, I, I'm glad I learned many of the lessons I hope they take so that when I deal with my grandchildren, maybe I won't make the same mistakes. But I, I, th this is a very vivid example of, of um, our, our oldest son, Jason, and uh, something happened when he was in high school. And, and how I, it, it, this is just such a reality. He came home one Friday afternoon. He said, hey, Dad, he's a senior, very responsible young man. He said, I'm going camping this weekend with the guys, with the fellas. I said, hey, that, that sounds like they all, we're always going camping. And in northwest Arkansas, trust me, there are some really nice places to camp. So they were going camping. And so I was asking him who all was going, and he mentioned a couple of things. And then he mentioned a girl's name. I said, oh, okay, time out. Time out. Run that by me again. He said, yeah, yeah. The guys are going and some of our friends, some of our friends who are girls are going. And I wasn't saying anything. He, he anticipated what I was thinking. He said, well, Dad, nothing's going to happen. We'll be in our tents over here and they'll be in their tents over there. And, and I started telling him why that was not appropriate. But he kept telling me and he kept saying, don't you trust me? Don't, well, yeah, it, but it's more than that. You, you need to trust what I am saying. And it went back and forth, and it kind of got escalated. And I, I really don't know what possessed me to do this, because I, I really can. You, you, you may not realize this. I can escalate with my kids and family. Right, Jan? Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, but I stopped and I reached out and I put my hand on his arm gently and I lowered my voice and I said, son, would you trust me in this, that I really have your best interests at heart? And I, it just, I could almost see it melting in his attitude. So Paul doesn't berate them with the Bible. He comes to them as a loving parent. I, I just love this portion and this reality in the book, book of 1 Thessalonians. So it's intensely personal. It's about relationships. Last thing. You're saying, are we ever going to get to verse 1? Yes, trust me, we will get to verse 1. Last thing is it's focused on the gospel. We got we, we to gotta focus on the gospel. That goes without saying, or does it? I really think that there is some forgetfulness among evangelicals today. I don't expect it from non-evangelical churchgoers, but I do expect that as evangelicals, that means we believe in a gospel, 
that we need to be focused on, on the gospel as the answer for everything. Because it is. And so this book is focused on the gospel. If you'll go through again like I do, and you'll just read. In the first chapter alone, gospel, word, word, gospel, 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 gospel. It's focused on the gospel. Okay, those are just some things. I hope you go through it and jot down some things that, that you'll find in it. But let's get into the chapter itself, the gospel, and the power to transform. Um, go back to the first verse. You see it right there, Paul, Silvanus. Uh, and by the way, let me just, just tell you about these three guys. We're going to talk about them first. Paul, of course, the apostle Paul. Notice how he doesn't use the title. He just says Paul. And then he says Silvanus. Now, do you know who that was? That was Silas. So Paul used the Romanized version, the, the full proper name, Silvanus. Luke, in the book of Acts, he wrote and he called him Silas. It's a nickname. So if Paul were writing this and I were included in the apostolic party, he would say Paul, Martin, and Timothy. But Luke would have said Paul chose Marty. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so Silas and Silvanus are the same person, and Timothy, stop there. All right, I love this, all right? This, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a throwback ministry team here. This was the original power team. Anybody remember the power team? The guys, I don't know if they're still around, but if, if you guys don't know, who, do you know who the power team is? You don't, okay. The power team were these really big, muscled-up guys who used to come, and, and they would put on things primarily for young people um, and a few of the adults that were brave enough to go in to that mix. And they were these huge, I mean, bulked-up guys, and they were real strong, and they would come in and do feats of strength, and they would rip phone books in two and, and, and pick up ten people, and uh, you, you know. And then but they had everybody's attention, and so they preached the gospel. So this is the original power team. Now, they didn't do feats of strength, but I want you to watch what they did. If you go back into Acts 16, we'll be going back there in a minute. They Listen, they planted a church in three weeks. I was thinking today, we, we talk about church planting, and we'll take years and all they planted the church, and it was a pretty good church. I mean, solid, maybe not big, but it was solid in three weeks. Now, Paul wrote the letter. We know that from going to the last verse in Second Thess. But here's what I love about this. He included his fellow workers. He could have said, I. I am the boss apostle who's writing to you. But he didn't do that. He could have said, I and my underlings, Lord, help us. I just, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. I don't know if you guys have, but sometimes at conferences and there will be the pastor from a particular church. And he's, he, he's going around and he's got his, his, his staff kind of following behind him and, and, it, it, it just speaks of something. Paul would have walked with them arm in arm, I, I really believe, because here was his attitude. The ministry is not about me. It's about we. Paul and Silas and Timothy, we share this ministry. And the reason they're included is because the people at Thessalonica knew them. He didn't need to use his official status. I'll tell on another one of my kids back, I think it was in Fayetteville when... People were asking, well, Pastor, what, what, Marty, what title do you, do you want? I just, you know I don't like titles. And so I, I said, well, if you want something that your kids can call me, Pastor is good. Pastor, Pastor Marty. Katie came up, what were you, third or fourth grade, and said, should we call you Pastor Dad? <laughs> I said, no, you just, you just call me Dad. You remember that? Here's something else I want you to see. This is so beautiful, and I look out, and I see how that we're all different, and God has brought us together. Paul, let, let's look at him. Paul was a blue-blood Jew, all right? He had a pedigree a mile long. Just go to Philippians. Read about his pedigree. He was a Jew of Jews. 
And he chose Silas or Silvanus, who was a Hellenistic Jew. Huh. He was a Jew, but he was one that was a Greek-speaking Jew. And, and if you'll remember, you have to don't go back there, but if you'll remember, the, the first controversy in the new church was in Acts chapter 7. And what was it about? It was about the overlooking of the Hellenistic Jews in the distribution of food. So somehow there was this setup of some who, who kind of, you know, thought they were, I'm more, I've got more of a pedigree than you, even though you are a Jew. Now watch this. We're going to see this in a minute when we go back to chapter 16, which we're going to do very quickly. In fact, just go, go back there. It's, it's, it's good. We need, we need to see this. How did, how did Paul and Silas get together? If you go back into the last part of ver chapter 15, there was a dust-up between Paul and Barnabas. They got into a fight. And so Barnabas left, and Paul chose Silas. I'm not going to say anything about Barnabas, but uh, Paul chose wisely. And he also chose wisely because when they started their second missionary journey and he got to Derby and Lystra, there was a young man named Timothy. Now, again, watch this. Timothy, and it specifically points out that his father was a Greek, that is an ethnic origin, and his mother was a Jew. I just thought in light of all that is going on around us that it could be significant. I just, this is reality that sometimes we read through this and we don't even catch what is there. Timothy was biracial. Now see, if you, if you think of, of, of ethnic backgrounds only as the color of skin, you would miss this. Timothy was biracial. Father was a Greek, ethnic background. Mother was a Jew. Now, that's the only thing it says about it because let's go back to last week and a verse that we considered last week. Here was Paul's attitude in terms of salvation and in terms of ministry partnership. There is, there's no difference, ethnic backgrounds, male nor female. You know, God created ethnic backgrounds and he doesn't want it to change, Right? God created male and female, and he doesn't want it to change, right? God created slave and free for a reason. Now, he says, if you can come out of that, that's fine. But watch this that he said. We don't lose our distinctions. We lose our approachability to the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. In Jesus Christ, all of those distinctions are broken down. All of the roles remain. That, that's a sermon in itself, but we don't have time for that, so I'm just going to move on. Again, get a feel for these guys. You're in, you're in Acts, right? Okay. Now watch what they went through. We're not going to read it, but I just want to walk you through it, and you can go back and read it later. You remember they were on their second missionary journey, and so Paul has a vision. He gets a call. He sees in a dream this man in Macedonia, and so he responds to that. It's called the Macedonian call. He leaves Asia. He goes across and parks in Macedonia and begins ministry there, and one of the first places that he comes was this incredible city called Philippi. And guess what happened when he got there? He started preaching the gospel like he always did. It's always about the gospel. He caused a riot. And he got beat up. And he got thrown in jail. Talk about injustice. You know, I've always thought, now, Paul and Silas, this happened to them. It doesn't indicate that Timothy w was in that mix in terms of it happening to him, but he was there. Because later on, we will see that, that he was there. So he was there watching this. He's younger in the faith than they are. He's watching them getting beaten up for the cause of Christ, thrown in jail for the cause of Christ, and he watches what they do. What do they do?
I'm just telling you what they do. There's no hint that they tried to seek justice. Now, later on, he did say, you know, I'm a Roman. And later on, there, there, there was that part of it. But right then, what did they do? And I heard it just a minute. They worshiped. They sang in the jail. Do you think that might have had an impact on young Timothy? I think it did. And then they went on through, and they're released, and they, they go on. Now, they arrive in Thessalonica. They were beaten up pretty badly. So here they are, like I said, the three amigos, kind of a motley crew, this blue blood Jew, this Hellenistic Jew, and this biracial guy, and they come into the synagogue, which was not used to the, that kind of thing, and they preach the gospel for three Sabbaths. I was going to say Sundays, but three Sabbaths. And they were bound together, heart and soul. Why? It could be trauma bonding but I think it was because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's the upshot about those guys and their ministry. They were not concerned about what was in it for them. They were not concerned necessarily for their comfort, their good fortune. They were more concerned about the gospel and the health and the growth of those new Christians. Look at what Paul would say later on, talking to the church at Ephesus. And th this has been one of my life verses. I, I, I really want to live by that. Y you know I'm closer to retirement than entry into the workforce, don't you? That should be apparently obvious, but it is. So I thought about that, this thing called retirement. What's that all about? Well, I hope that, th that this would be a life verse, not just when I end my ministry here and, and move into another kind of ministry. He says, I don't count my life as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. What ministry is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All three were bound together. All three had this attitude. Let me just say this. I'm, weave, I'm weaving current events. This is not, I'm not getting up and making statements about what's going on, just like I haven't said a whole lot about the COVID. We've tried to stay on course with what the Bible reveals about the gospel, but it speaks. Just think if everyone out there had this attitude. Not considering their own lives as precious, but they had one thing in in goal, the gospel. Just think how different it would look right now. Okay, but that's just the problem. They can't because they're living at the wrong address. Okay, let's look on to the next part. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church, the called out ones of the Thessalonians. Okay, a little bit about the town. You can do your own research. It was a big town. It was a port city, meaning that boats came to it. It was on a, a road called the Ignatian Way, the Roman road. So it was well-traveled. It would have been a lot like today in the United States, New York, or San Francisco, or Boston, or, or Houston, it was a vibrant city, but it was a really, really diverse city. There were Romans, there were Greeks, there were Jews, there were travelers, there were rough sailors that came into town, immigrants that came across the way. But the one thing about Thessalonica, like it's, it's like this with every town, there was this pervasive spiritual darkness and confusion. It was like a fog. And that's why Paul was there, so that people could come out of the fog. If ever there was a city that need transformation, it was Thessalonica. These were real people, folks, just like you and me, who were overwhelmed with real struggles and desperately in need of a life-changing, identity-changing encounter with the living God. Now, it says this, the church in Thessalonica, this was their physical address. Much like the church at Heritage Baptist Church is in Oklahoma City. That's our physical address. Now watch this. 
For their transformation, they did not need to change their physical address. They might have, if the Lord had willed it, but they didn't have to. You know, you know one of the things that that says to me? That in order for you to be transformed, you don't have to change your physical address. You don't have to get up and move to a different city. In order for transforma uh, transformation to take place, you don't have to move to a different job. You don't have to move to a different mate. You don't have to change churches. The people do all of those things, but do you realize that people many times do those things because they feel this is what brings transformation? There's only one thing that will bring transformation, not changing your physical address, but changing your spiritual address. And I love the way Paul puts it. This is the church in Thessalonica, but let's look at the last phrase. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church, a group of people, an assembly. It wasn't an organization. It wasn't a club. Individual believers from all different backgrounds joined together, again, body and soul, as a band of brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because they had changed their physical address, but because they had changed their spiritual address. And obviously they were a part of the, the greater body of Christ, so are we, that is throughout the world, from every place and every age. And, and I, just, I just think of it what it might have looked like on that Sabbath day when they're all meeting together in their synagogue. Maybe there were, there were God-fearing Jews there. Maybe there were a few idol-worshipping. It indicates that these people, a lot of them, came out of idolatry. So maybe there were some idol-worshippers, secularized people, who had come to, to, to kind of hear what was happening. In walks this group of guys if, if they heard, if the news had already traveled, they just got out of jail. And they're all beat up. What happened to you guys? Well, we got beaten up and thrown in jail, but we'd like to talk to you. Could we have the pulpit? Well, they, and I love this, they, they reasoned and they persuaded. Those are two words that you find all through the book of Acts, reasoning, taking the scriptures going through the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, but persuading, going back to the relational aspect. And isn't that what happened to you? At some point in time, whether it was in church or Sunday school or, or vacation Bible school or wherever it was, somebody sat down and opened the Bible or they opened the scriptures to you and they reasoned with you and they persuaded you and you heard it and you took it in and it began to make sense. There's that whole story in Philippi about Lydia. The Lord opened her heart and you believe. And so radical was the change. This, this is interesting. So radical was the change that in chapter 17 of Acts and verse 6, it says this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, these were opponents. What do you think the believers, the new believers were saying? Now, you've heard this. It's almost trite. Huh. They didn't turn the world upside down for us. They turned our world right side up. so that everything begins to make sense. Your world was turned right side up. Why? Because you changed spiritual addresses. You used to live in the domain of darkness. Yeah, yeah, you live in the same house. You live in the same city, but you've changed spiritually. He delivered us, Colossians says, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Now, let me ask you something. Of the two addresses, remember I talked a minute ago about obituaries. We'll come back to that. Of the two addresses, your physical address, wherever it is, 4400 St. Thomas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73120. 
which is the most important? Come on now, this is not rhetorical. Of your two addresses, which is the more, most important? Where you live, the street you live on, or being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom you've bowed the knee, the, the one who is the Savior, the one who is the Messiah. And you talk about life defining on so many levels. That's why I, I would just stop here and make an appeal. And if you have not had your life transformed and you've changed spiritual addresses, oh, listen, my friend, today would be the day. You know why? Because Paul says two more things, and with this we wrap it up. All right, here we are, this motley group. No, I'm not talking about you or the church at Thessalonica. I'm talking about Paul and, uh, you know, the preachers. We're a motley bunch. But here they are preaching to this little group, and they, they get saved. They, the Lord opened their hearts, and they get, they get saved. They get so gloriously saved that people accuse them. They're turning the world upside down. Wouldn't that be great? If they said that about heritage, man, that church is turning the world upside down. But then he says something, and this is not just a casual throwaway greeting. Grace and peace. Grace to you, believer, and peace to you, believer. More than a common greeting. How can you have, let's take the last one first. How can you have peace in this world that seems like, and I heard a guy say it this way the other night, unraveling right in front of us. And have you thought about it as a Christian? Your sense of peace in the midst of all this? There's been injustice since the garden, since the fall of Adam. There's also been suffering. There have been riots all the way along. Loss. Let, let's, let's expand this. It's not all about what's making the news today. Some of you has, have experienced loss, relational ruptures, anything. And let's go back and remember, they received the word. Are you receiving the word, the grace and peace to you in much affliction with the joy of, of the Holy Spirit, you suffered the same things. This is all at the beginning of, of, of the letter. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen. And, and then he encouraged them and said, don't let yourself be moved by these afflictions. So how do you get peace for yourself? How do you get it? There are a lot of people looking for peace. There's only one way to get it, and it's through the first thing that Paul mentions, grace. God cannot give us true peace. Are you hearing me? God cannot give us true peace and the joy that goes with it apart from himself because it's not there, it's in him. There is no such thing as true and lasting peace without the grace of God. And that's why Paul would say to another group of, of people, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he would say also to another group of people in another church, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, and this is the first component of it, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have peace with God, then peace the peace of God is also possible. This is probably one of the most quoted verses, guess where? Guess what context? I mentioned it a minute ago. At funerals, whether we actually read it from the scriptures or not, it's one of the most quoted, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension or understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And many times I've prayed that over a family. And then you read the obituary. So and so, let me, let me just put myself in there. Marty Brown, 
John Martin Brown. I prefer Marty, okay, when the time comes. Of 4400 St. Thomas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73120. Passed in, I'm going to write, I've thought a lot about this. What am I going to say about my transition? Passed into glory, met his Savior, you know what? He did. And do you know why? Because of a change of spiritual address. You know, I've read those words, the peace of God, may the peace of God guard your hearts. And I've done that in some funerals, and it's obvious that the peace of God is guarding their hearts. Why? Because they have made peace with God. But I can tell you that I've done other funerals where the peace of God is not there. Because it's pretty well assumed that that person had not made his peace with God. He had never changed spiritual addresses. He was still in his sins and not in Christ. So what you get out of this, the first verse, you get a new identity. You change your address. Then out of that, you will see flowing in your life the peace of God for which you hunger. So what do you and I do? What does the church do in perilous times by the way, this is just a perilous time for today. We, we've gone through other perilous times, haven't we? As a nation, as a people, as a world, haven't we? Will we go through other perilous times that don't resemble this? Yes. So what do you do? What does the church do in unrest? How do we get at reconciliation? I'm going to read from someone else, but before that, uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to read through to, uh, to you today. And, and it's, it's really a concern. Southern Baptist Convention has issued a statement about the situation. And I read it for the first time this morning, and then I reread it. And then I reread it. And just hear my heart. I, I could be getting it wrong. It's, it could be me. I was concerned with what I read, okay? But I was grieved by what was not there. Because never once in a denominational statement signed, and this is where I started looking at the, the, the people who had signed that, and I thought, am I, am I just out in left field? Do I just not get it? Look at the people who have signed this. I'm not surprised that the author authored it. I'm surprised and even shocked by the people who signed it, saying we agree without comment, without question. And the place where I'm grieved at what it didn't say, never once did it mention the gospel. It talked about reconciliation, never once the blood of Jesus as the only real and lasting hope. So I'm going to quote a preacher. Are you up for a quote? We're almost finished. Can, can you deal with another quote? You at home, are you still there? Did you get another cup of coffee? Okay, here we go. Listen to this preacher. Paul's great object, he's, he's writing and commenting on 1 Corinthians 9.22, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul's great object was not merely to instruct, please listen to every word. Paul's great object was not merely to instruct and to improve but to save. Anything short of that would have disappointed him. He would have men renewed in heart, forgiven, sanctified, in fact, saved. Have our Christian labors been aimed at anything below this great point? 
then let us amend our ways, for of what avail will it be at the last great day to have taught and moralized men if they appear before God unsaved? Blood red will our skirts be if through life we have sought inferior objects and forgotten that men need to be saved. Do you hear a theme in this preacher? Paul knew the ruin of man's natural state and did not try to educate him, but to save him. He saw men sinking into hell and did not talk of refining them, but of saving from the wrath to come. The compass to compass their salvation, he gave himself up with untiring zeal to telling abroad the gospel, to warning and beseeching men to be reconciled to God. His prayers were importunate and his labors incessant to save souls was his consuming passion, his ambition, his calling. Written as an evening devotional, December 12th, in the 1800s by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Colossians 1.20. It's not up on the screen. Just listen to it. Here's the goal. And through him, Christ, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that, my brothers and sisters and friends, that is the point. Father, I pray that you would help us as we take to heart the things that we have learned. If I have spoken, misspoken anything, Lord, then may I correct it. May it be corrected in the hearts and minds of others. But if I have spoken the truth of your word, let us take it in. And let us be transformed by it. Lord, that will not happen without the gospel that Christ died for sinners like us. Those who have rejected the rule and the reign of you, our loving and benevolent creator, have thrown aside your law and deserve your just judgment. But you sent Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Lord, our eyes have been opened. I pray that the eyes of people who do not know you today would be opened, whether here in this building or listening. And I pray that they would see the reality of Christ and his forgiveness, his redemption, his blood that makes peace and reconciliation. Father, hear our prayer now for salvation and for sanctification and for all that goes with it. And help us as we Close this service now and give our lives to you to follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.